This is Bird Road. I'm Q. We have a great show lined up for you today. One of one that I've sort of teased out for the past few episodes. Um, but first, if you're looking for Iowa coverage and that entire disaster, keep an eye out. We have a primary special coming up. Um, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review as usual anywhere that the podcast can be found. Um, we're going to be posting a new episode the day after the New Hampshire primary and possibly doing a live stream with some special guests. A little bit of counter-programming so you don't have to listen to CNN or MSNBC or Fox or anything. You can listen to us instead. We're still undecided on what platform we're going to do, either Twitch or Facebook Live. Keep an eye on the Twitter feed at Bird Road Podcast to find out for sure we'll update when we decide you know, where we're going to live stream. A couple of updates on our live shows, which we've been talking about on March 15th. Just a few days before the Florida primary, we're going to be uh, hosting... We're going to be hosting the Rising Tides of March at Gramps in Wynwood. So our guests are still TBD, but keep an eye out. Um, it's going to be a great show, I'm sure. Gramps is a fun place to do a show. We're going to center climate change there as an issue because to this point, it hasn't really been mentioned nearly enough during all the discourse around the, the, the primary. You can RSVP on Eventbrite or birdroadpodcast.com or just show up. It's fine. But uh, in just 10 days, 10 days from now, February 17th at the Golden Tiki in Las Vegas, the All Presidents Go to Hell show, where we will discuss the moral ambiguity that comes with being president of the U.S., if it's possible to be an altruistic commander-in-chief, or if the position is sort of intrinsically corrupting, and uh, what that means for our future, POTUS, and it's on President's Day. So uh, we can confirm now that Matt Crispin from Chapo Trap House is going to be joining us. So for our Vegas listeners, come join us. But today... We're keeping focused on Miami, keeping focused on South Florida. We have plenty of contentious campaigns of our own in the coming year and uh, here in the county. There might not be a more critical position up for grab than state attorney. We've talked a lot about uh, the current Miami-Dade state attorney here before, especially in recent weeks. Her name's Catherine Fernandez-Rundle. We've talked about her mostly in the context of her failure to address a lot of much-needed criminal justice reforms, failure to hold police accountable when they break the law, uh, we talk about Miami being a, a place of great inequality, and the justice system here is no different. Thankfully, Fernandez-Rendell has a challenger this cycle, first time in a long time, and her name is Melba Pearson, a former deputy director of the ACLU of Florida and a former prosecutor here in Miami-Dade for 16 years. Melba Pearson, welcome to Bird Road. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so um, we've heard you talk recently about why you're running. You've pointed to the need for criminal justice reform in Miami, specifically bail reform. But let's start there. Can you explain for those of us whose lives aren't like regularly touched by the criminal justice system, what's happening when the typical felony or misdemeanor, like an individual charged with a felony or misdemeanor is arraigned, what happens to those accused people, and how that process needs to change? Sure. So... In Florida, we're one of the states where we rely very heavily on the cash bail system. And what happens is you get charged with a crime. Let's say, and I'm just going to use random examples and random numbers. It's not necessarily 100% accurate. But um, let's say you're charged with a grand theft, which means, let's say, you stole a cell phone. And that's a third-degree grand theft. Um, you get arrested. You go before the judge. The judge sets a bond and says, okay, the standard bond for a grand theft, and again, making it up, is $5,000. Right. So what you can do is either A, if you have the $5,000, you can give that to the court yourself, and that's your guarantee that you will come back to court. And so you're released, right? At the end of the case, you get your $5,000 back. 
But most of us don't have $5,000 laying around. So you pay a bonds person 10%. So $500. You give a bonds person $500, and then they guarantee that you will come back to court. So if you miss a court date or something, the bonds person comes out, tries to find you, sort of Mm -hmm. like the whole dog, the bunny hunter, problematic show as it was. But, (laughs) you know, that's basically what he did. I think that most people are familiar in that context, like Mm -hmm. that sort of pop culture context. Mm -hmm. Very specifically, they see individuals on shows like that, but I don't think that they understand the the, the wide sort of systematic um, predatory nature of that on, on people with lower income. So yeah, so following with that same example, so you gave $500 to be able to get out, right? But let's say the charges end up getting dropped against you. You don't get that $500 back. Even if you showed up to court every single time, never missed anything, never caused a problem, didn't get rearrested, anything, you lose that $500. And for most of us, that's a lot of money. Right. Now, if let's say you don't have that $500. You work at a big box store. You have no means to be able to get that money. That means you have to sit in custody until your case is resolved. So many times what happens is that people may not be necessarily guilty of a crime, but while you're in custody, what happens? You're not going to work, Mm. so your boss fires you. You don't have a job, therefore how are you gonna make your rent payments? You can't pay your rent, then where are you living? You have a car, let's say you have car payments, you can't pay that, they repossess your car. So now as a result of being arrested and brought into the system, you don't even have the opportunity to really fight your case before your life completely goes sideways. And what some people do is that they end up taking a plea because they're like, look, I can't sit in custody any longer because my family needs to be provided for, or I'm gonna be homeless. I've gotta get back to life. I've gotta get back to my life. Like you're literally yanked out of your life. And if you don't have the money to be be able to fight the case, you're now being punished because you're poor. Not because you're convicted of a crime, but just because you're poor. And that's problematic because two things. Number one, money does not assure safety. The question is whether or not you're a threat to the community. And that's what the basis should be as to whether or not you have to stay in custody pending your case or if you get released. We've seen many high-profile cases when we look at the Jeffrey Epsteins of the world and R. Kelly who were wealthy, able to bond out, and then continue to commit crime. Because the fact that they're wealthy and they're able to bond out does not mean they're a a, a safe prospect, right? Right. So, So... it's just kind of getting away from the notion that money equates to safety. Mm-hmm. So that that's the biggest thing I wanted to bring out about that. What 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 is a what does a uh, a reformed bond system look like? So there's a couple different models we can look at. Yeah, because so, people have been doing this. Correct. So yeah. the state of New Jersey has done that. Um, I believe New Mexico has done it as well. Certain parts of New York have ad- adopted this model. And some other smaller jurisdictions across the country have experimented it with it with maybe a few crimes or you know a few different types of charges or maybe on a local level, the entire bond system. And, and just also for context, the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., they don't have a bond system. Mm. So the the federal jurisdiction, basically, it's like either you're a risk 
or you're not. Right. And a lot of Jewish... So you stay behind bars or you don't. Correct. That's it. Correct. And a lot of times the different organiz- different uh, uh, areas will use what's called a risk assessment, which I'm not 100% you know, in favor of risk assessments because sometimes biased information goes in and right. then exacerbates outcomes. But it's certainly a better option than where we are, where it's all about your the money in your bank account. Um, so what I'm looking to do when I become state attorney is to end the use of cash bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent offenses, unless, of course, a person presents themselves as a danger to the community in some way. But as a general rule, it will be to release people on their own recognizance, which means, okay, I promise to come back to court in conjunction with services. So let's say you got arrested for that grand theft. Well, maybe it was an issue of poverty. And so maybe you need assistance getting a job. You'd be looped into a program to be able to address that. If it was a matter of addiction, we'll you know, loop you into whether it's Jackson Memorial Hospital or some outpatient program or even an inpatient, if it's more dire, uh, program to be able to address that so that you don't reoffend. Yeah. Now, I grew, up in, I grew up in New York, as listeners of the show know. I grew up during the advent of um, what... Uh, has colloquially and in some cases pejoratively become called drug court, yep. which can end up becoming um, as punitive in, in some cases as uh, the, I guess, the sentences that they're deferring, right? Mm-hmm. So is, is does the state, state attorney play a role in reforming that element too? Um, and how? Like, it's I, I don't know if that's really something that's huge in Miami, but I, I, what I see a lot of times is well-intentioned programs that end up being weaponized and drug court absolutely where i grew up was was something that that fit that description Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts so i grew up in new york as well so i know of what you speak and our drug court here does some good work but i think people end up getting either bounced out or not and when i say bounced out they're out they're bounced out of the program for for whatever presumably violated on their right violated in some way but we also have to remember the fluid nature of addiction it's not like you go to court and then the next day it's fixed right or you go to a program and the next day it's fixed it takes 28 days and then you're probably going to relapse you know at least once in the first year of recovery that's part of the disease so we have to keep that in mind when we're working with folks who are struggling with addiction and also we have to look at the crimes that you're allowed that allow you to be able to get into drug court because there's a very a narrow list at the present and I think it should be expanded because okay. you know at the end of the day we want to make sure that people get the help they need so they don't reoffend because less reoffending means less victims which means a safer community in the long run so we're going to get to a few of those specifics that I want to I want to ask to kind of get you on the record about in terms of like how we reform the way that criminal justice is practiced right now. But first, before we, we do that, I wanted to give people sort of an opportunity to get to know you. Mm-hmm. We've had our current state attorney for, I think, um, since years. Green Acres was on the air. <laughs> and uh, people know her. She doesn't need any more opportunity for people to get to know her. Mm-hmm. But uh, t- tell us about yourself a little bit 
And if you can, draw some comparisons between you and your opponent. Certainly. So um, as I mentioned before, I was born and raised in New York. I came down here in 1997 to work for the state attorney's office. I did so for a year. And then I left after I had a little mishap with the bar exam, but I was also 23 years old. So, you know, living in South Beach for the first time. It happens, man. Right. You already know that was a formula for disaster, (laughs) right? But I spent the next five years doing PR events and marketing, working within both corporate and, you know, contemporary nightlife. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about human nature. I learned what addiction looked like firsthand, you know, being surrounded by folks who either casually use drugs or more, more heavily. Right. And I saw how that manifested in the destruction of lives on so many different levels. And then after 9-11, I sort of had a like, okay, what are you doing with your life? Like planning parties is great, but you can do more to help people and really do something meaningful in in society. So I took the bar exam again, passed and came back to the state attorney's office. And I was there for 15 years uh, after that. During that time, I did everything from grand thefts, car thefts, everything, all the way up to double homicides. I was a community- You perpetrated all these things. No, I'm just kidding. Nah. <laughs> no, no, no. Prosecuted, prosecuted, prosecuted. And got away with it. Yeah. She's still on the streets. <laughs> right, exactly, right? So, yeah. So, I did, um, I was in the felony domestic crimes unit, so handling, like, basically the, the homicides of people who died at the hands of their partners, which was very, very intense work. Did that for four years. Was a community prosecutor where I worked in mostly communities of color, uh, you know, talking to them about the law, their rights, and sort of like how cases play out, sometimes being the cleanup woman when an unfavorable um, decision was made by the office, and that was not always fun, I can tell you that. Uh, and then I ended my career at the as a prosecutor uh, while being the assistant chief of the career criminal robbery unit. So at that time, I was supervising young attorneys and teaching them how to, you know, analyze cases, and I was was the one that people came to if they're like you know these facts don't sit well with me am i missing something and i'd be the one to you know help them get the approval or give them the approval they needed whether to move forward with a case or to drop a case because you know you you needed that you needed that layer of, of approval in the office uh so you know so i was trying homicides at that time and also supervising which was you know which was great but at the same time i was also president of the national black prosecutors association so as part of that role i was able to travel the country and see how other states and cities administered justice. And that really opened my eyes as to the way we could be doing things differently in Miami-Dade County. But the current administration was not interested in any of those um, suggestions or ideas. And so, you know, I became disenchanted and the opportunity to work with the ACLU of Florida and Howard Simon came up. And I jumped on it because of his history with the civil rights movement and just, you know, being able to learn from somebody so amazing. And so I spent three years as a deputy director of the ACLU of Florida, worked on Amendment 4 to help get that passed so that returning citizens would have the right to vote, worked on criminal justice reform and police practices across the state. And I resigned in December of last year to be able to be a full-time candidate. So that's what I am right now, full-time, knocking doors, doing this from a grassroots perspective and trying to interact with each and every single voter, which is something my opponent is not going to do because she's not present in the community. And, you know, uh, I am and I intend for the voters to get to know me and to also hold me accountable once I'm elected. So it's not like, okay, I'm going to show face now and then disappear once I win. It's going to be once I win, I'm still going to be present in the community, meeting with key stakeholders,
answers to make sure that I'm hearing from all these different critical groups, survivors, activists, law enforcement, uh, returning citizens, whoever you are. And you, if you have a stake in this community, I want to hear from you. And I'll take that into consideration when setting policy to make sure I'm not harming any section of the community. So I want to go back there for a second because you mentioned occasionally having to do having to do what equip what um, what amounts to damage control in community of colors for uh, in communities of color when decisions come down or developments happen that that are you know can be enraging right and we we, we think about recently um, uh, a lot of police involved police abuse cases mm-hmm. which uh, you know I, I'll, I'll say it for you in Miami Dade it, it's become an epidemic that these things which predominantly affect communities of color when uh, officers abuse their authority, um, that they either get slow rolled, they take forever to actually come to any sort of um, any sort of conclusion. We had attorney Ray Tassif here a few weeks ago who brought up the point that during that period of time, people move on with life, people move, people die just yeah. naturally. Mm-hmm. It, it's that long of a period of time. Then you've got more egregious, even more egregious cases like um, the one that everybody's been talking about lately was that of Hialeah Sergeant uh, Jesse Menocal Jr., who uh, was p- credibly accused by a number of w- women and one girl of um, of sexual assault and molestation. What can a state attorney attorney do to curb this? What seems to be rampant law enforcement abuses? It seems like there's no real. Obviously, Menocal Jr., for example, was had to be arrested by the FBI. Right. And right. and it, it, right now, I think for a lot of people. In the community, it feels as though there's no recourse and that nothing will happen and that they're just there to be preyed upon. Um, what What are your thoughts and how are you going to tackle that thorny issue? Certainly. So the case of Jesus Menocal uh, was a clear failing of the Miami-Dade County State Attorney's Office, period, point blank, end of story, right? You had a situation where you had four women and girls that came forward and said, this officer abused me in this way. He sexually assaulted me and, you know, he used his badge to be able to do it by pulling me over. And all of their stories were strikingly similar. The uh, prosecutor who was handling the case spoke to one victim, and that was the end of it. She determined that she was, open quote, a bipolar, manic, depressive, runaway gang member, close quote, and therefore was not worthy of being believed or or being deemed to be credible. Now, if she had actually spoken to all four victims, she would have seen that there were so many similarities that there would have been enough to file a case and wrap all four and now five, because we're discovering there's a fifth victim, survivor, excuse me, uh, you know, wrap them all into one charging document so the jury could hear about all five and then make a decision as to his guilt or innocence. But she denied the survivors that opportunity by deciding the first one was not credible. She didn't even bother to speak to the remaining survivors to find out what their story was and that was just that was just a gross negligence at best and I don't know I mean I don't want to speculate as to the worst case scenario so 
it's just horrifying. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office had to get involved to hopefully bring these 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 women justice. But the way that a prosecutor can handle this is number one, you have a unit that's specially dedicated to, to these issues, right? Mm-hmm. Like your public corruption unit also investigates police shooting cases, police misconduct cases like that. And they do so in an expeditious manner, in a, in a fast way. That's not sloppy, That's not sloppy, but right. right. And because some of these police shooting cases, I know because I, I've seen the dates on them. I've, I've been involved in the investigation process. Some of them linger for five years. Yeah. And we all know in, in the prosecutorial defense, you know, uh, criminal com- work community that people uh, they stop answering their phones they change their phone numbers they move just all over the le- they leave the state yeah right and the longer you wait on the case the more likely the case is to fall apart which yeah. is why you want to try a case as close to the time of the event as possible because memories fade etc so a police shooting case or a police misconduct case should be no different like it should be handled in an expeditious manner. So that would be my goal as state attorney is to restructure the office to make sure that there's folks who are also insulated because it's not like I'm investigating this police officer today and then tomorrow I've got to rely on them to build a case that I'm working on because I'm still in the trial division and I'm still actively trying other cases. They need to be focused just on misconduct so that they don't have that distraction that, oh, I don't know... I still have this open case and I got to deliver for my victim on that case, but I need this officer, but I also have to investigate him. That's just way too messy. Yeah. So make sure that we have a very clear, uh, clear lines mm-hmm. so that people are able to move forward, do these investigations and hold police officers accountable, just like you would any other person charged with a crime. So I think that what's unique about somebody with your um, sort of, uh, progressive posture and a little bit more reform-minded posture coming into this or aiming to come into this position is, you know, you look around the state and you see people like um, in the Ninth Circuit, you have a, a state a, a state, a state, a state attorney named uh, Aramas Ayala who has adopted similar sort of reform-minded measures and gets pushed back, mm-hmm. gets fought because we are at the end of the day in a Republican state in the right. South. Mm-hmm. Have you given, is that putting the cart before the horse for you to think about those kind of things before you presumably take this position or is that something you've thought about? Like how can somebody who is looking to reform a system that's so deep in the heart of a, you know, a, a Southern state, be successful at it. Have you given that a lot of thought? Sure. So that is one of the things I thought about before even deciding to run. That was part of the calculus because if I didn't think about it, that I'd be very foolish. Uh, because again, as I go and I have these conversations, I want to be able to talk about things I can do. And if I'm making promises that I can't keep, that's not going to look good for me in the long run. And that's right. certainly not doing the people of Miami-Dade County a service, right? So I definitely took that into consideration. And in looking at each of my the, the pillars of my platform, I knew these were all things that I could control internally to some extent. Uh, I can create new policy for my prosecutors to follow. I could create new units that would interact with the community differently. I can continue to meet with key stakeholders to find out their points of view and make sure that they know that they have a seat at the table and they have access to me. These are all things I can do. I can be transparent in the way that pleas are being offered in the sentences that are being requested at the conclusion of trial. You know, so that transparency piece, I don't need 
anyone else to be able to effectively do that. Now, the pushback comes when you're trying to do more sweeping policy reform. And it is what it is. You know what? If I have the support of the people, if the people have given me a mandate saying we want these reforms, I'm going to fight and do everything I can to make it happen. And I will communicate with the key stakeholders who may push back because I think a lot of times we don't always communicate. Yeah. I think sometimes it's as simple as sitting down with people and letting them know what your agenda is and what you're trying to accomplish and meet them where they are. Sometimes it's about showing them the fiscal savings. It's a, hey, look, we're going to save the taxpayer X amount of dollars over time. Right. Some people can get behind that. Other people, it's about the, okay, we have vast inequities in the system. We need to address that, right? So you just have to figure out what the other person needs to understand and you can potentially move forward. We are, even though we are in a purplish, reddish state, Miami-Dade County is a progressive county. So I think I can find some allies to be able to get this done. So I want to talk about it from that angle, too. I'm going to skip over a little bit. I'm going to come back to uh, some specific questions that I want to ask you about your positions and uh, categories of, um, of, of what I think a lot of people think are things that need to be reformed. But I want to, you brought this up, so I want, to, I want to jump into that. From the left, right, there's this core tension. I'm aware of it, right? Philosophically, and I want to explore this with you, prosecutor equals cop mm -hmm. for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it should be that way. I think a lot of people would agree. They'd say, like, there should be this adversarial nature between the police and state attorney's office for the that, that sort of, like, redounds to the benefit of the public, where we've just kind of come to accept this law and order Dick Wolf, you know, TV show <laughs> style yeah. of, like, the cops working hand in glove with, with prosecutors. How ideally should that dynamic be? It's I don't I I think what a lot of members of the progressive community think is that it's back rooms that the public are not a part of. Find me evidence so that I can make this prosecution. Okay, I'll go find you evidence that, so I can make this prosecution. It makes for great TV, mm -hmm. but it also ruins lives in real life. What does that dynamic look like in 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 your ideal world? So in in my ideal world, the police are part of the stakeholders that that have to be a part of the system. I mean, there's no way around it, right? Like you can't prosecute a case without the police bringing you evidence because you as the prosecutor are not, that's not your job, right? No. Your job is to look at everything and see if there's enough to move forward. Can you prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person did it? Do you even think the person did it? Because that, that's where you got to start. Yeah. Because I'm not even thinking about beyond a reasonable doubt if in my gut I don't think this person did it. I'm not going to go in front of a jury and advocate for somebody to be imprisoned or to be on probation or to be on house arrest if I don't believe deep down in my gut 200% that they committed this crime. Yeah. So you, you have to start from there with that moral compass. But... I think police are integral the same way that survivors groups are integral, right? Because they're the ones who have gone through a horrible experience and they want to make sure their voices are heard. But other people need to be at the table too, as well as activists, right? Because they see some of the things that maybe survivors may not come forward and tell you, or maybe, uh, you know, Joe Smith from the, the, the public may not come to your office because he's too afraid, right. but he will communicate that to a community activist who will then communicate it to you and say, hey, I've been speaking to people in Liberty City and this is one of the main concerns. So, you know, you can't eliminate police from the equation. They have to be a part of it as with everybody else. But it's one of those things where it's trust but verify. 
Yeah. Right. And sometimes the verify gets lost in it. It's the whole, okay, it's police. So I have to take everything they say at face value. Yeah. Some, which I think a lot of people in marginalized communities would say, that's what ends up happening. Right. Is that like the police are believed their word is, uh, their word is gold mm-hmm. in, in the court. The, their word is gold in, you know, arresting documents or uh, arrest reports. And then anything that's contrary to it can uh, be like what you were just describing, where mm-hmm. it's like, having the moral compass to actually go after somebody who's guilty of something as opposed to just saying this is an easy prosecution right. and I should be able to, you know, as long as I get this testimony and I have this little bit of evidence, it doesn't matter whether or not the person actually did it. Right, yeah. right, Which is right. A, a slippery slope that I feel like in this county and a lot of cities we've slipped down. Oh, right, no, and, and, and I agree to the extent that sometimes not everybody follows their gut because they don't feel empowered to do so. So the key is making sure that the prosecutors are empowered to follow their gut and request more. I mean, look, I was a prosecutor for, you know, close to 16 years and the cops all knew one thing. If your case was not airtight, I was going to send you right back out the door. Yeah. I mean, there was no debate about that. And defense attorneys can attest to that. Cops and detectives that have worked with me can attest to that. If your case is not airtight, you better take that back out the door. Because I'm not authorizing someone to be arrested for their liberty to be lost, for them to sit in custody for two, three years until the case comes to trial. And I'm thinking in the context of homicides mostly. But still, you know, it can be two, three years for, you know, a, a, a burglary or something like that. But... The key is to make sure that that the case is solid, not that we're arresting people and we're hoping that we can build a case later on because that's the backwards way to do it. Um, So, yeah. So, like I said, trust but verify, you know, the same way a survivor comes in and says X, Y, Z happened to me. You believe them on face value, but you also verify to make sure that the evidence matches up with what they're saying. So, you know. It's all just, again, looking at the totality of the circumstances and being empowered to be able to say, this case isn't good. We're not moving forward. Or to say to the officer, you know what? Your detective said X, Y, Z. You're saying something completely different. There's a problem. Mm. And I'm not moving forward because I I have questions here. You mentioned murder. That's one that's not on my list because I think we can all agree that that's pretty bad. But um, I do want to jump into some specifics, right? Sure. And what specifically, Miami-Dade, contrary to probably what a lot of uh, maybe public opinion around the country might be or public thought or impressions might be around the country. Miami-Dade is not a, what's a considered, quote-unquote, a sanctuary city. Mm-hmm. Um, that is like a place that is, you know, safe and non-cooperative with ICE mm-hmm. uh, with respect to, you know, apprehending um, apprehending undo- the undocumented. We have had leadership, uh, mayorships that have worked pretty um, closely with ICE, what would be State Attorney Melba Pearson's relationship like with ICE, and how would it be different than um, what we see right now? Which a lot of times, in all fairness, a lot of times bypasses local authority, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and can be is very overreaching for a number of different reasons. But uh, you know, this is a really broad question. What would um, you you taking over that office? What would be the net effect of that for? the undocumented of our community, of which there are a lot. Right, right. So one of the first things that I would be doing as state attorney is reaching out to the undocumented community and letting them know that if you are a victim of a crime, 
do not suffer in silence. Which happens a lot. Which happens so much. And that was in a part of my advocacy when I was deputy director of the ACLU of Florida was around the danger of how, you know, some of these immigration policies on a local level affect the undocumented community, especially, you know, people who are victims of domestic violence or, you know, getting robbed because they're working in the fields and people know when the, the farmers are right, yeah. farmers are paying them, so they wait and then rob them when they're coming out of the fields knowing that they're not going to report it, that ends up having a chilling effect. These policies have a chilling effect on the reporting of crime, which means there are people who are violating the community and getting away with it. Right. And, and at the end of the day, that serves no one's purpose. So, because I mean, doing that is not going to make the person necessarily, you know, go back to where they came from, right? If, if that's the mentality, like, oh, let them get victimized so they'll leave. Okay, that's not happening. That's not going to happen. That's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah. So I want to make sure that the undocumented community knows if you are a victim, I don't care what your status is. I just want to help you. Mm. I want to make sure you get justice because you deserve justice. Everyone deserves justice, right? And if you commit a crime... I'm going to ask my prosecutors to look at the immigration status from the perspective of deciding what charges should be filed and what the resolution should be. So if it's something that's not violent, right? Like, again, going back to the grand theft, right? You stole a phone, whatever. You know, I don't think that's something you necessarily need to be deported for because you're not necessarily a threat to our community. But that, but maybe you are because maybe you have a long history. I don't know. But that should all be looked at in the totality of circumstances. Like, look, is this somebody who we can give diversion to and they're not going to reoffend again? Or is this person really like harming our community? That That's always the, the calculus for me. So that's how I intend to look at it. I'm not going to have to figure out who we can deport and who we don't because that's not my business. Yeah. My business is justice and making sure that the, the people of Miami-Dade County are safe. Um, how should the state attorney's office prosecute marijuana possession? And I want to couch that by saying to this point, famously, uh, in recent history, Miami-Dade has been very uneven in the Correct. way that they that they and uh, that the way that they enforce I mean or or don't enforce frankly uh marijuana possession and uh, overwhelmingly based on anecdotal evidence I think but still overwhelmingly it appears to really have to do with the color of your skin and your zip code the Absolutely. way that the way that your that 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 marijuana possession is um charged prosecuted how, how should it be so under my administration, I will not be prosecuting marijuana possession, period, end of story. Okay. Um, I will be looking at the numbers because I'm a very data-driven person um, because I feel that the numbers don't lie and the numbers don't have an agenda, right? So I will be looking at the numbers of folks who get arrested for possession with intent to sell marijuana because sometimes those folks have a large amount of marijuana for personal use. Mm -hmm. So if you catch somebody, it's payday, they don't drink, but they smoke, and you know they, they get a few bags, that doesn't necessarily mean they're planning on reselling it, it's just the weekend, right? Like right. some people get a six pack and other people get, get an ounce, it is what it is, right? So I don't view that as a crime that is going to you know harm other people. I don't even really view it as a crime, period. I mean, to be honest, because you look in Colorado and they're, you know, people of a different complexion making money hand over fist over what people in Overtown and Liberty City are getting arrested for and going to prison for. Well, it's the old <laughs> thing about like, look at all of the things that have been quote unquote crimes right. in the course of our 
our history know, or history it's, mm-hmm. and and yeah the, the the it begins to sort of lose some of its fidelity like what is a crime versus what's wrong right yeah. exactly and i would also you know so i think trafficking if you're trafficking in marijuana I mean, you got to put some work in to get to trafficking weight of marijuana. So you know what? I'm going to prosecute that. Like that, there's no question on that. Um, and actual sale, again, that's something that you prosecute, right? Because think of it this way: if it was completely legalized, like Colorado, you still have to have a license. You know, there's still protocols that you have to follow. So I look at it to yeah. make sure that I'm being fair, not only in the context of our county, but in the context of what's happening across the like country. The regulatory business environment, and correct. Things like that, correct. So. so that that's where I. Then it becomes a more that. of a tax issue, though. Really, like in mm-hmm. Colorado, I. I would imagine it's like IRSCI is probably the people that come after you or, or whatever their state equivalent is, um, you know, I guess uh, uh, revenue enforcement, whatever that would be on a, on a state level is, is what comes after you. Um, but so, at the same token, if you think about like contracting without a license, right, sure. like, you know, that that's a criminal offense. So right. I, I think of it sort of in that realm, like you're, you're selling with, without a license. <laughs> you're going to lose a libertarian and anarchist vote with that one. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, guys. Fortunately, there's well, I'll bring you back on something else. <laughs> there, aren't, there aren't a whole lot of them here in the uh, in, in, in the state. No, actually, I think on the totality of of your position on that issue, you um, you actually probably would fare pretty well with that uh, relatively minuscule vote. But um, a, a little further to, I don't even want to call this further to the left, but just more further on that issue, what is your stance on non-marijuana related uh, drug arrests, cocaine, opioids specifically? I think that that's two, in the context of Miami, that's two very different things. Cocaine happens, um, you know, and I'm, I'm making broad generalizations here, but we are obviously a huge tourism hub mm-hmm. and cocaine is a big, not a big part of it, but it is a part of it. Right. It's mm-hmm. a part of the lifestyle and the thing, you know, it tends to be a little bit more of an upscale drug. Mm-hmm. Opioids are a problem just like the rest of the country. Right. It's been resurgent here in South Florida and a real life destroyer, a real like degrader of public health. But um, I think that a lot of people would say that the enforcement efforts behind the targeting those two drugs have on net done worse for the people that are affected by them than, than, than good. They've done more right. bad than good. Mm-hmm. What's your position? So my position on drug possession, non-marijuana related is it's more about the treatment of the addiction, right? So let me let me parse this out a little bit more. So for cocaine, are you here for the weekend? Was this like a party gone awry? You got to take that into consideration, right? I'm not going to make you go to rehab here in Miami if you really live in California. That that to me does not, again, serve the people of Miami-Dade County, and I don't know that that necessarily helps you. But if you're in a situation where you know, you're know you here and your life is being destroyed by addiction, I want to find a way to help you, right? So I'd want you to go to a program of some sort, whether it be drug court, whether it be you know some other program that we end up implementing because of best practices across the country of you know things that have worked well and, has sh- and the data has shown that it works well bring it here to Miami to be able to help folks with addiction. But I don't view it as a crime per se. I view it as a public health issue. Because if somebody has cancer, you don't arrest them for having cancer, right? Like you, you try to get them chemo, you try to get them radiation, you want to get them, you know, the, the, the drugs that they need to be able to get well. So I look at addiction the same way. You need treatment to be able to address in these demons and be able to move forward with your life. And we have to, like I mentioned before, it's not like 28 days and you're fixed, yeah. right? We know that this is a longer process, but we have to treat it as such. 
in order to, number one, make folks whole, and number two, reduce recidivism. Because if you don't address the addiction, guess what? They're breaking into somebody's house to get money for drugs, right? You know, other public health issues result from it. What I mean, and again, for the benefits of people who haven't grown up poor or who didn't live through, who haven't lived through uh, family members who have been uh, affected by these um, by by addiction, especially when poor, mm-hmm. right? Because I think that this becomes not to be classist, but I'm classist, and uh, <laughs> I think that this is a thing that is more of a inconvenience, and yes, obviously, still a very serious issue when you are at middle income, upper middle income middle income and more wealthy tax bracket for people in the working class and lower class it is it it can be a world destroyer because you have vastly fewer resources available to you and you can be prescribed something from the judicial system you need to go here and do this and attend attend these things mm-hmm. and the realities of life when you're on the, the sort of lower rungs of the income scale are very preventative for that right mm-hmm. what's I mean, can you point to a situation or another, another case study that we can maybe emulate in Miami with our huge population of, of, of poor people that can be effective in taking that into account that some people, you know, they have to make room for it in their lives. And a lot of people are stretched so, so thin mm-hmm. the way things are right now. Like what? what what's a way to actually implement what you're talking about? Sure. So, you know, just to to piggyback a little bit on what you said about the class issue, think of it this way. If you have, you know, a a white collar or a a good job that gives you good benefits, right? You got Blue Cross Blue Shields, right? You can go inpatient to a fabulous rehab in Delray Beach. I always say, this is horrible, but I always say, like, I see the commercials and I'm like, I don't have an addiction, but I want to go because it's like on the beach, you're doing yoga. Passages. Yes, passageways and whatever, you know, and you're like on the beach playing the guitar and, you know, like $2,000 a day. Right, right, right. And the average person can't afford that. Right. Right. So if you've got great insurance, you can address it that way or you can go to Betty Ford, whatever the case may be. But if you're poor, you don't have those benefits and Medicaid or doesn't necessarily cover that to the same extent or what they do cover may not be of the same in-depth, intense nature to really help you dig down and address the issues. Because sometimes addiction is about the addiction, but it's also about trauma. So if you're in a poor community, in an urban core community, under-resourced community, you may have seen people get shot. You may have people you've grown up with may have passed away in a violent manner in front of you, you know? You may be surrounded by violence, and that causes trauma. We look at our soldiers who come back from war having seen horrible things, and they have PTSD. Right. It's the same thing. Like, if you're hearing gunshots, gunshots outside of your door on a regular basis, that's going to cause some trauma, and that can lead to you using alternative medications to be able to deal with what's happening, which leads to addiction, right? So these are all things that have to be addressed. You have to address the the safety issues that are going on in the communities, and that can't be divorced from the issue of addiction. But going back specifically to your question, I've seen some interesting models in New York where you have community centers that, you know, okay, so over here you've got, you know, a rec center or whatever, someplace as a center in the hub of the community where folks can, it's not, you have to take three buses and the metro rail to be right. able to get to. The practical considerations are really tough sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. If you know, if you work crazy hours and you get off work at like nine o'clock at night, 
well, how are you going to be able to still pay your bills and be able to go to rehab? You're not. So making sure that we have centers that are available on the weekend or, you know, late at night so that folks can get the therapy and the services they need to address the issue while still being able to work. Yeah, I'm personally of the opinion that we as a country have come to this strange nadir where we like, We've accepted that things like addiction and just general like mental illnesses overall or mental disabilities or whatever you want to call it are valid and real, but not to the extent where we would put any kind of like, you know, in, you know, put any kind of public funding behind them mm-hmm. or put any kind of or like, you know, create even an insurance, you know, category mm-hmm. where you can where you can take advantage of it. It's still I mean, for anybody who's actually ever tried to just get just normal run-of-the-mill therapy right. it's very difficult to find absolutely um can you give you a little bit more of a thornier one sure um sex workers often find themselves being victimized but not just by uh people who are you know taking advantage of them or or pimps or or people who traffic them but also sometimes by the justice system mm-hmm. very often by the justice system there's been a focus on cracking down on sex workers obviously we're in the era of just a few years post sesta fosta um it, I think most progressive, and there are a lot of organized sex workers across the country who oppose SESTA-FOSTA. Where do you stand? I mean, we're in Miami. We're in a place where sex work is, there's a lot of sex workers. And mm-hmm. not all of them are, you know, working uh, of their own volition, obviously. Right, right. And then but a lot are. And mm-hmm. this is a pretty thorny issue. I'm a man. I try to stay, you know, I don't want to say that I have, like, no opinion on it. I obviously do, but I'm not... A consumer of the sex of sex work and I'm not a part of you know that economy and I think a lot of times people try to graft their own opinions onto issues that right. probably don't really affect them and I, I want to avoid trying to do that um, where do you stand how can you how can you be considered sort of a progressive prosecutor or a, a reform prosecutor in this climate that a lot of times ends up being sort of detrimental to the people that are most at risk right right that's a really tough one um I mean, I have my own personal opinions on on sex work. I'm I personally believe this is me personally. This is not necessarily when we do a state attorney, but you know, I, I sort of believe in the Amsterdam model, right, or the Bunny Ranch model. Like, you know, legalize it, regulate it, make sure that those who choose to do this for a living are able to, you know, uh, be tested and you know get get care and and not be abused, right? So. You know, there, there's that part of it. But where my concern lies as a law enforcement officer, because the prosecutor is the top law enforcement officer in the county, um, is making sure that those who are being trafficked aren't somehow falling by the wayside. Because, and, and that that's where I'm still trying to work through what the best practices are. Because I've seen a number of different models, but at the same token, you still have a situation where uh, people who are in in the sex trade and are victimized are afraid to come forward because right. of of their of of their work, and they don't want to be arrested or or anything like that. So they suffer in silence, much like we see with undocumented people, right? And at the same token, you have these traffickers who are abusing young girls and, and, and just, you know, destroying their lives and, and leaving them with long lasting trauma, which re- often results in addiction and additional criminal behavior, quote unquote, because of the fact that they're trying to escape this abuse and, and, and rebuild their lives and they just can't because they don't have the resources. So I, I, I am very 
open because uh, I know I don't have all the answers, um, but I'm not afraid to say I don't have all the answers. Yeah. And the way that I approach things is always with an open mind and looking for what other people have done because you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's like smart people out there who study these problems like mm. 24 hours a day and they come up with like these white papers. And so you just look at what solutions are out there and listen to the people that are impacted. That's, that's another thing that I think is really important. You got to listen to the people that are closest to the pain. So if you are someone that survived human trafficking, I want to hear from you as to what resources you need to mm. be or would have needed to be able to help you get get your life back on track and escape this horrible situation that you're in. If you are a sex worker, I want to hear from you, too, because I don't want to necessarily marginalize you and say, oh, you're not worth anything. You have no opinion because this is the vocation you chose for your life. Yeah. You know, so that that's kind of where I land on it's so it. It's a, it is a complicated issue. I mean, and it's probably, I would say, of, of the things we talk about generally when we talk about criminal justice reform, it's probably the easiest one to stick your foot in your mouth mm-hmm. and to piss off a bunch of people. Right. Because there are um, a multitude. I mean, I have friends in Las Vegas DSA, for instance, who are who are sex workers, and they have their own agency. And mm-hmm. by that, I mean their own their own wherewithal. Right. They run their mm-hmm. own business. They mm-hmm. are their, They are working unto themselves and they're doing it legally and they're, you know, even if they weren't doing it legally, they're doing it correctly. We talked again about the difference between legal and what's right. Right, right, right. And then obviously here in Miami, it's, if you pay attention to these kind of things, you see that very frequently that there are the opposite end of that spectrum. People who have been, uh, women who have been brought in, girls sometimes who have been brought in from Mm -hmm. other parts of the country, Eastern Europe even, Mm -hmm. uh, and they obviously don't have that agency. Right. And um, I just want to lay all that out there for anybody who's listening and thinks that, you know, lest you think that Bird Road would, you know, uh, minimize. There's a wide spectrum on this issue and we're very acutely aware of it. Another issue, houselessness in Miami, mm. often being treated as a mm. criminal offense, mm-hmm. um, maybe not directly, but through things like, you know, trespassing laws and violations right. and mm-hmm. uh, ex- ex- uh, uh, outstanding warrants and things like that. Uh, it goes hand in hand with addiction and mental illness that we've already mm-hmm. talked about. And poverty. And poverty, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have a very unforgiving criminal justice system and climate, actual literal climate for people who are um, houseless and who are in the thrall of these problems. What can you do to curb that and maybe actually get to the root of some of those issues? Because I feel like this, we, we, we attack home, homelessness, houselessness, and we treat it as if it's the root problem. But really it's a symptom and there's more in almost every case, there's more going on underneath. So what's your philosophy on that? Sure. So I have seen some really great models around uh, community courts and how you can actually, uh, this was, I'm not remembering the name of the judge. I believe he was out in California. I listened to him when he was giving a panel presentation on what he was doing around um, homelessness, houselessness, and access. Um, and he had a, had a way of being able to go to rotating areas in the community so that people who had outstanding warrants, things like that, he could be able to address it right then and there and help them be able to either A, be connected with services or just at the end of the day, not have a warrant hanging over their heads because of the fact that they couldn't find the transportation to be able to get to the courthouse downtown. So something like that is what I would be exploring as well as, 
you know, putting it maybe in the shape of a problem solving court. So that way, again, it's accessible to people in the community, you know, something that they can be able to get the services they need. Maybe Camilla's house doesn't work for them. Maybe they need something different. You know, maybe they just need to get back to where their family is, you know, and it may be in another state. Who knows? We, we don't know what 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 uh, traumas or um, baggage that, that, that people are bringing with them. But we have to do our best to address it and not necessarily criminalize them for it. Because, again, it's not necessarily your fault that you're homeless. Mm-hmm. Like, you you know, like the scenario I gave before that you got arrested for a grand theft that maybe you didn't commit. Uh, you lose your job, you lose your home, you're living out of your car, your car gets repossessed. What are your options at that point? How do you get back on your feet? It happens with some people where it's more hidden and they just sleep from couch to couch because they have friends that can help them, but they're technically houseless, right? Yeah, it's a narrative. I think, I think, I think houselessness and the condition of not having a place to lay your head is, um, it's a narrative. It's a story throughout a person's life. And during some chapters of it, they do have places where they can go. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, if the, those root causes that we talked about aren't addressed, right. ultimately they don't have places to go. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. those are the more visible. That's what we see. Right. And um, police, I think, interact, tend to interact with them a little bit more. And uh, yeah, it's 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 not so simple as just saying like, oh, well, you know, they're homeless. Give them this or something. Like right, that. right. It's definitely more nuanced. Mm-hmm. So... You know, we, we have to look at the problem and figure out, you know, speak to the homeless, ad, you know, the houseless advocates and see what they're recommending. What are they seeing? And then looking again at best practices around the country and figure out what will work best for our populace. I mean, you can't just take something some from somewhere and plug and play. Yeah. You have to look at at how we can best do it here so that our population and our acute differences are being served. So our last question is a broad one. Sure. Big one. Um, and it has to do just with the nature of criminal justice here in, in Miami and in Florida, which is a place that leads the nation, I think, in in um, in incarceration rates. Mm-hmm. And there's this concept of decarceration, mm-hmm. just draining this human mass that is currently behind bars or underneath the thumb in some way, whether it's parole or probation mm-hmm. of or, or monitorship or something like that of the state or, you know, county. Mm-hmm. Is that the goal? Decarceration, should that be what you put as sort of the, you know, the the banner at the top of, 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 of your office and say, okay, that's the goal? Or is it about doing all these specific individual things that we're talking about and that sort of happening as a result of them? Like, how are you, you know, what's the cart, what's the horse? And how are you approaching that? So my end goal, number one, is a more equitable and fair criminal justice system. That That's always the overarching goal because the goal is justice, right? And making sure that people are receiving justice. Um, I believe decarceration is an important part of it, but you have to do all of these things because you can't just literally just let people out of prison and think you're doing something, right? You can, but in the long run, if someone gets out of prison and doesn't have a place to live, can't get a job, um, you know, can't reconnect with with their family or with a healthy group of folks that won't trigger the the issues that got them into the situation in the first place, then you have recidivism. And we're not doing anything to, to solve the problem. And then, you know, f- folks who have a different mindset will say, well, look at this failed experiment, right? So for me, it's, it's about over time making sure that there's systems in place that reduce our reliance on incarceration and that 
help with reentry and make sure that people don't come back into the system and then you get to decarceration. But I think a lot of people get caught up in the decarceration as a term and don't understand the bits and pieces that have to be in play in order for this to happen and happen successfully and keeping the community safe at the same time. So Florida is a close primary and it is. it is Democrat versus Democrat. August 18th this year, mm -hmm. you must register as a Democrat. Do they, is it the same, uh, the, the same deadline of February 18th to register as a Democrat or do, do they give you a little more time? I believe it would be a little bit more time, but definitely check on the website, the Secretary of Elections website. Right. But I also do want to point out we have open primaries in Florida. Oh, okay. So, so anybody can. Anybody can, unless uh, a Republican or an independent files to run in the race. And if that happens, then it becomes a closed primary and only Democrats can vote. But if no one else enters the race, it's just two Democrats. And so everyone would have the opportunity to be able to uh, to vote and cast their vote. Well, uh, but best of luck to a Republican trying to run for state attorney in Miami-Dade County. <laughs> Look, anything can happen, but yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say? Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, no. I was just going to say that um, qualifiers and all of that will be resolved in April. So if I had to make an educated guess, I believe that the deadline for registering would probably be after that point. So because you don't know if you need to change your affiliation until after right. the qualifiers and who's finally going to be on the ballot is resolved. But I still would suggest, you know, go to the Supervisor of Elections website. Yeah, I think and you check can also deadlines. go to IamElectionReady.org yes. and uh, check on yourself. Where can people go to um, uh, learn a little bit more about you and your campaign? So I am on all social media and I have my website, which is www.MelbaForMiami.com. Melba, F-O-R, Miami.com. And I'm at Melba for Miami on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Melba Pearson, thanks for coming to Bird Road. Thank you so much for having me. This is great.